I want this morning just for a little while to turn back to the, for the last time in the near future anyway, God willing, to Mark's gospel. We've taken, I suppose in some ways it seems like an, uh, an age to get through this, but it's not really that long. And we've actually been doing it quite quickly because we wanted to get across the fact that Mark kind of wrote his gospel really, I don't know if he wrote it quickly, but the intention was he was just getting across a whole lot of information quickly about Jesus. He wanted uh, people to know about Jesus, and he doesn't spend long on any story. He's moving quickly. Uh, he's moving uh, passionately through towards uh, the uh, last week, the Passion Week, and to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, I hope we've tried to convey that a little bit by taking chunks of the, the book, the uh, chapters at a time, and not going into each chapter in much detail. And we'll be doing the same today. But over these last weeks, and any time you've read Mark's Gospel, any time you've looked at it, uh, you'd understand and you'd know that Jesus says lots of things. He says lots of things uh, in uh, Mark's Gospel. And indeed in the Bible, he says, you know, that you're to love God. Uh, He says that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, turn the other cheek. You're to forgive. He says, not to be afraid. He says, follow me. And we loved the bits when he went into the temple and he he uh, gave a really hard time to the religious leaders. We like that. We like that he exposed hypocrisy and the people that thought they were proud and important and religious and good and moral and upright, he absolutely slammed. He gave them the hardest time and we like that. We love that. Because we like to think other people are hypocritical. We're not quite so keen if the, uh, uh, the light of, of Jesus Christ kind of shines into our own hearts. But we do. We, lo- we loved when Jesus said these things. And he says, of course, lots more uh, in the gospel. And that's good, and that's significant. And in verse 31 of this chapter 13, he says, Look, heaven and earth will pass away. The world will pass away. Things will change. He says, but my words will never pass away. So he's giving himself this amazing significance and authority, which very few people will give to him today. He'll say, look, heaven's important. Earth's really important. Your life is important. There's amazing structures in this world, both personal uh, relationships and families and communications and, and even physical structures. But he says, all of that is going to pass away. But he says, my words, because I'm living and because I'm eternal, they will never pass away. And so his words are significant and important. That's why we spend so much time thinking about them. There's a great permanence about what he has said. So important that he calls himself in John 1, the word. The, the one who communicates, the one who is something significant and important to tell. And therefore, uh, his words that we've looked at are hugely significant. But often, isn't it true in our lives? It might not be true. It might be true for the hour you're here, but it might not be true um, for the, the hour you're here. But for the rest of our lives, so often, it is even either for us or for people we know, he's the last person that we listen to. He's the last person whose words we think about. And he's the last person whose words we take as significant and important because we don't really think that they are words which will never pass away. But that by faith as Christians, we've come to that place where at least theoretically we believe that. Even if practically sometimes we don't put it into practice. But I like to think about his words in this chapter. What he's saying here. Um, And what he speaks about is the future. And he speaks about the future from his time and moving right forward till the end of time. And I think lots of people are fascinated by the future. There's lots of films about the future. 
There's lots of apocalyptic type films about how everything's going to end. But we're all interested. We would all be interested if we thought someone could tell us about our future. Maybe not. Maybe it's too scary a thing to think about our future. Maybe we would shy away if someone could say, hey, come here. I know what your next five years are going to happen. I know exactly what's going to happen in your next five years. Would you go for it? Would you, would you listen if, it, if you were guaranteed it was true? Would you want to know? Well, I don't know if we would, would we? Maybe sometimes we would. Maybe sometimes we wouldn't. Whatever would happen, we'd be shocked by it. I guarantee it's not going to be what we expect. All of our next five years will probably not be what we expect them to be. But Jesus here is speaking about the future. And uh, it's a fascinating future that he speaks about. And so it kind of should interest us. Even if we're not Christians, it should interest us because he's speaking into today, into our lives, as it were, because he's he's speaking from his future, into our lives and beyond our lives because the world is still on the go. And basically what he's speaking of, and this this is a complicated, difficult chapter. I'm not going to go into it in any kind of depth. I'm just going to give a quick overview is he's really pointing to the trajectory the world is taking with God at the center from his perspective. From his perspective, a God's son is the one who knows the end from the beginning, the eternal God. He's giving his future trajectory, kind of prophetic, in other words. He's saying what is going to happen in very general terms in the future. And basically, he's saying, I'm here. I'm just about to go to the cross. And he says, there's going to be a time in between then and me coming back finally to bring ultimate justice into the world. The cross is about his justice. It's about how he deals with the problem of sin and rebellion and evil and wickedness in the world. But it's not a final, ultimate, completely final uh, act because he will return to bring in Uh, ultimate justice, to be the judge uh, of humanity. And uh, when he comes again, uh, the judgment will be on his terms. Okay? We all like to judge ourselves, and we like to judge, particularly in comparison with other people. But he'll be bringing judgment uh, on the basis of what he's done on the cross, what it reveals about what he thinks about our characters and our need and uh, our relationship or otherwise with him. And he will also uh, judge finally on our response to Jesus Christ. And the judgment that he brings on our lives is always on his standard. I think that's really important just to think about. It's not, I'm as good as the bloke next door. I'm better than the woman two doors down, but it's on his standard on that day, and that's one of divine perfection. So it's speaking into our our futures and speaking about his return, okay? So we can either do one of two things. We can either face up to at least the claim that he makes. He's making this claim. We can face up to that claim and take it seriously and think about possibly the consequences it might have in our lives, both as Christians, because if we know a future that's coming and a a perspective that he wants us to think about, then we need to think about that as Christians. And if we're not Christians, we need to think about that as well. 
uh, face up to that claim that he makes, take it seriously, examine it, and uh, think about the consequences it might have for you in your life and for me and mine. Or you have the other option. You can ignore it. You can switch off. You can suppress that knowledge or that truth. You can reject it. And you're absolutely free and absolutely open to reject what Jesus claims to say. But in doing so, you need to think about who Jesus is and his claims, and you need to follow it right through and say he's not worth accepting because he's a nutcase. Or he is worth considering because of who he claimed to be. But if you do choose to reject Jesus Christ and his claims, then you also need to think about the alternative that you choose to live by. And is it a, is it a thoughtful alternative? Is it one that is justifiable? Is it one that's going to deal with uh, some of the bigger issues of the world in which we live, but also our personal needs for forgiveness and grace and what its answer is to our own death? and even to the future. So there's lots of things that I hope that Jesus encourages us to think about, at least think about, when we come to his word. You know, his words uh, will never pass away, so I want us to think about them just for a few minutes. So he's coming back. That's what he's saying. He's been once. Nobody denies that Jesus has been once, unless they're complete fruitcakes. And he's really been, he's come, he's claimed that he came for a particular reason, Uh, to live, to die on the cross, to be raised again for our salvation. He claimed to be that. And now he's claiming in this amazing chapter that he will come once again to be the judge of all the earth and to bring heaven and earth which will pass away and uh, introduce uh, a new creation. What happens in the meantime? So what's happening, Jesus says, between the cross and his second coming? And we are here. We are in this time, okay? We're in the time between the cross and the second coming. Well, what does he say? Well, he says, during that time, there will be religious nutters. In verse 6, he says that there will be people, many come in my name and say, I am he and will deceive many. Can a religious people, uh, leaders possibly, uh, people who are completely deceived, who say they're Jesus Christ, who say that they know when the end of the world is going to come, who uh, bunker down and get ready for it, and then the day passes and they say, wow, we've got the date a little bit wrong somewhere along the line. And people who just uh, claim things that simply set them apart as being religious nutcases. And Jesus says that will happen. These kind of people will be around who will deceive many, who do not have the truth and who do not speak the truth and who do not believe in Jesus, ultimately in Jesus' own words. And he says that is going to happen. And we know that happens. We've seen it. We've got it on the internet. We hear about it all the time. Sometimes it happens from our American brothers. Sorry. There's quite a lot of folk from the U.S. here. But they tend to claim more divine Jesus-type characters. And we need to be aware of that, that they will deceive many. But there will also be global upheaval. Verses 8 and 9, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pangs. Global upheaval, we know that. Jesus is saying this is going to happen. There's not a great deal, he says, that's going to change 
from before the crucifixion, when there were these things, to after the crucifixion. There's still going to be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and tornadoes. And all these things are going to happen. And he says, that, I'm telling you, that will be the case. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. That's what he says will happen. And then he also goes on to say that there will be persecution for Christians. Verse 9 and and onward, you must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to local councils, flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings, etc. You'll be arrested, etc. And so on. And he's saying that during that time between, between my first coming and my second coming, Christians in greater and lesser degrees in different countries at different times will undergo persecution. And sometimes very severe persecution for their faith. We heard this week, uh, there was a guy who spoke at the assembly, which was the general assembly, which was meeting in here this week, and he was speaking about persecution of Christians and that they were reckoning there's 100 million Christians who uh, are suffering uh, persecution, persecution that very different to what we might think we suffer in our lives. Uh, but nonetheless, even in our own society, we'll find that more and more we are being isolated, we are being shoved towards the edges of society in terms of influence and significance, and the views of uh, traditional Orthodox Christianity are being rubbished. So that there will undoubtedly become a time fairly soon when, at least in the laws of the land, we will undergo persecution if we stick with uh, the teaching of the Bible. Persecution of Christians. Jesus says it's going to happen. And that's all just between his first and second coming. And uh, that is what he's teaching. And the question for those to whom he was speaking, or, well, no, maybe not quite. Yes, to those who he was speaking. But at least those to whom Mark was writing this, the early Christians that Mark was writing to, and to, uh, to Christians ever since. The question is, do you believe this trajectory? Which he tells us what's in between. He says he's been once, he's coming back again to really to be uh, the bookends of history at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. Um, do you believe this? Now, it's a difficult thing to believe, isn't it? It's difficult to think of the future like that and to think of a spiritual future that Jesus is absolutely sovereign and Lord over, that he's going to come back to govern. Because it doesn't look like that, does it? It doesn't look like that in the world we live in. It looks a bit more like what he says, wars and rumors of wars, persecution, uh, things aren't going particularly well. It doesn't look like he saved the world. But Jesus knows that we are prone to doubt all the time. And he knows it's difficult for us to believe these truths. He gifts us faith to believe them. We need to ask him for faith. But he knows that it's difficult. So what he does in this chapter is that he... He slots in a little section into the chapter which speaks about a different short-term future for the people of Judah. Now, this is very important. Can I just ask you to concentrate for a minute for this? He gives a warning about a very near future disaster that's going to happen in Jerusalem, which by the time Mark's gospel was written, the readers would be able to look back on and say, yes, that actually happened. And it gives them a sense of that more likely then to believe all the rest of the things he's saying about the future. Because in verse 14 to kind of verse 20 and a little bit more, 
he talks about something very specific. He says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, if he was talking about the end of time there, there wouldn't be any point in fleeing to the mountains, even if you were in Judea, because it's the end of time. He's talking about something very specific. And he's talking about uh, a really bad event that was going to happen pretty soon uh, in uh, the Middle East. And he, he says, he goes on to say in verse 30, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So there's kind of two prophecies going on here. It's a little bit mixed in. One of them is about the end of time, because he goes on to say no one knows the day and the hour. But he also speaks about something very bad happening within the generation who are listening to him. And most scholars and historians and uh, biblical commentators uh, believe, because it's very clearly paralleled, he's speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, when uh, there was a truly horrific destruction both of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem. Thousands of people were massacred in the most barbaric way uh, by the um, advancing and uh, Roman armies of the day, I think under Caligula. And there's a warning within this that Jesus gives for the believers who would follow what he says to flee, as I said, into the, to the mountains. Get out of Jerusalem. And actually, there's a, there's a sense in which um, that is historically at least uh, something that um, is accepted uh, by historians. Murdo, maybe you want to go out, uh, William. Um, that many, it's believed, that the commentators would say that many believers in the early church that was in Jerusalem did flee Jerusalem and listened to this warning before uh, the destruction, the terrible destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And so Jesus gives this little prophecy which came true within the lifetime of the people and within the lifetime of the people who would read Mark's gospel uh, to give them a sense of assurance that the rest of what he was saying would also come to pass. So the question might also be, well, why is there such a miserable trajectory? You know, Jesus has come. He's come to save the world. He's died on the cross. He you know, he's come to bring new life and forgiveness and hope. Why is there so much until he comes back? So much suffering, pain, persecution. What kind of God is he? Well, why does he leave that big gap with all that suffering and misery going on and the persecution of Christians? What's it all about? Why doesn't he come back sooner? Why doesn't he bring us new heavens and new earth? Well, I think for one thing, there's mystery within that. I don't have the answer to that. I don't think God gives the answer to that. And there aren't specific answers uh, in the word. It's great mystery about the remaining power of evil in the world. Great mystery about why God has timed things the way he's timed them. Oh, I'm not God. You're not God. He is God. And there's things he's chosen to tell us, and there's things he's chosen not to tell us. But I do think there's a massive hint in verse 10, where he says, And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. The gospel needs to be preached. You know, he hasn't made us robots. He hasn't made us people who will just believe because he zaps us. He is, 
he wants us to be in a relationship with him. He wants us to be in a relationship of love, a voluntary relationship of love with him. And he wants people to accept the gospel message. He doesn't want us to be uh, unwilling conscripts in his army. He wants us to love him. So he wants the gospel to go out. He wants people to have the choice. People to live the way they live and see the way they live and come to look for Jesus Christ. He wants people to turn to him. He wants people to understand his love. He wants them to come willingly to see their need. He wants them to understand the cross and the extent of his love and the extent of the cost that he paid in order to set us free. He wants us to understand that the cross does speak of judgment on himself as he poured it out. It speaks about his standard of perfection. It's very different from ours. But it shows that he loved so much that he was willing to pay the price himself because we couldn't pay it. And he wants people to understand that and to come to faith. He wants the good news of the gospel to be preached, the grace of Jesus Christ. He's patient so that we as Christians have an incredibly significant and responsible role to share the gospel, not to be silent, but to share that good news and uh, to recognize his compassion. So with all the kind of maelstrom of trouble and difficulty in the world in which we face, the evil, the brutality, the wickedness, uh, that we've, we've even seen this week in the news in most horrific terms. And we see every week in the news, don't we? When is, when is the last time there's ever good news on the news? And it's all brutal and it's all, there's so much violence and horror and uh, oppression and poverty that we are completely uh, kind of immune to in so many ways throughout the world. And it breaks our hearts in many ways and we don't understand it. But he wants his gospel to go out. He's patient. He doesn't want the end to come until his gospel is preached. The good news of his love and grace. And he says, just trust me. You know, that's what he says, trust me. He doesn't say to trust him when we understand every last bit. That's easy, isn't it? He says, just trust me when it looks bad and when it's difficult to understand and when it's countercultural and when it's a, a, a whole different tra- trajectory from which uh, we might uh, consider as the right one. Well, what's our response uh, as we close? Well, our response is the response that God the Father wanted us to have to Jesus the Son when he spoke. Remember when, when he was in the Mount of Transfiguration, God says, this is my beloved son, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. So listen to him because, he says, why? Because my words don't pass away. They're significant, they're weighty, they're big, they're important, they're strong. Uh, your life will come and go, my life will come and go, St. Columbus will come and go, um, our generations will come and go. My words will never pass away. Listen to them. And he reminds us in this chapter, which we really just scanned very briefly, uh, the importance of, as Christians, as being alert, you know. He says, no one knows about that day, or there in verse 32, in the 33, be on your guard, be alert. You don't know when that time will come. So he's told us for a reason. He says that, I've told you it for a reason, because I want you to be alert. In verse 23, he says that, um, So be on your guard. He says, I have told you everything ahead of time. So if you don't listen to anything else, if you don't remember anything else from the sermon, remember that. 
that Jesus says, you know, be alert because I have told you everything ahead of time. I've told the early Christians that there's going to be a terrible destruction in Jerusalem in AD 70. And now I'm also telling you that I'm going to return and I'm going to return as judge. And please recognize and be on your alert for that. Know your surroundings. Know the world in which we live and say, well, yep, Jesus told us it's going to be like this. But it's temporary. And recognize as Christians our spiritually our responsibility to be on guard, spiritually alert. Uh, Watched a little bit of Forrest Gump last night and uh, he goes into the army at one point and he's really alert to always be there to help his friends in their time of need. He's not sleeping. He's alert and he gets a medal of honor for that. And, you know, spiritually he's saying the same thing. You know, we're in a a family or an army uh, and we're to look out for one another and warn one another, but also be alert to the reality of life around us. We're to be spiritually uh, praying, uh, listening to him, and aware of the need to share the gospel. I also gave uh, the whole missions talk this week, and one of the pers- one of the statistics that I gave was uh, in Scotland today. Today, for today, for example, uh, only 0.24 percent of Scotland will be in a free church. I know there's a lot more churches than that, but less than one quarter of a percent of the population in Scotland will be in a, that's about 12, that's about 12,600, will be in a free church. I know there's a lot of other churches, but the percentage probably doesn't rise to more than 5% at the most. Maybe really, really positively you could say 8%. But that's a huge mission field, a huge gospel to go out with, and we've got a great responsibility to be part of that. Not just to sit back, not to be asleep, but to be uh, spiritually alert, to be prayerful. Eat and pray. Come on Wednesday night. Come for food. Yes, because the food's great, but come to pray as well. You know, sign up for it. You're not just on your own as a Christian. You're part of the kingdom. You're part of a church. And we need to pray together because the need is great. Absolutely great. We really need God's involvement in our lives and God's involvement in our church. And the only way we can do that is if we pray together. There's no point in just abandoning that duty, responsibility, privilege that is ours. So please do consider coming along to pray on Wednesday. And also to read his word, to listen to what he's saying. It's permanent. So when we pick up the Bible, we're picking up his word. You know, it shouldn't be that we live our lives not in relationship with him, with a closed Bible. We should be reading it. I'm not nagging. I'm just saying that that's the reality. In a a loving relationship, we we communicate, we talk with one another, and so it is with God. We pray to him, and we should be reading as we should make it a duty, a part of our life, that we wake up in our day or whenever we do it, and we open his word, and we read and we listen to what he's saying to us, and we become acquainted with it, and we know it, and we understand it, so that we are people who are awake, and that we listen to his warnings, and that we're not sleeping, you know, uh, as he says, in verse uh, 36, he says, you know, keep watch. You don't know when the owner of the house will come back. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. So spiritually, you've got that same picture. Don't, don't be asleep, he says, when you should be awake. Now, we know there's times where physically, humanly speaking, it's right, it's good to sleep. 
but he's speaking about here when he's using the illustration in the way of where we're sleeping where we shouldn't be sleeping. Maybe asleep at the wheel or asleep because we're lazy and we can't be bothered getting up. You know, something really important to do during the day, but we just want a long line. We pull out the duvet over our heads again and it doesn't matter if we let people down or if because we're lazy. We just want to sleep when we shouldn't be sleeping. Or we sleeping because we've got no energy to do the right things because our priorities are doing the wrong things. So we're sleeping because we're recovering because our focus is on the wrong things, not the right things. That's just generally speaking. But spiritually it can be applied as well, can't it? That we're not to be sleeping spiritually when we should be awake. We shouldn't be selfish and lazy with our time. So we go, ah, we've got time for Christ and, and for his kingdom. Or, ah, I can't be doing it because I've, my energies are, are being taken up elsewhere. My life, my future, my ambition without Christ. No time for him. Uh, no energy in, in that level. He says, watch and respond to me. Because he says, I have the words of eternal life. And I love you. And that's great, isn't it? He's the words of eternal life. And we love him. But it's a dreadful thing, as we said at the very beginning of the service, to fall into the hands of the living God, who is a consuming fire also, and his perfect justice and judgment. But he says, I've poured all that out on Jesus for you. You don't need to face that. You just need to accept my love and serve me, because you were made to serve me. And that's great good news. Amen. Please consider his words and remember, above all, that uh, they never pass away. Okay, um, we're going to sing another psalm before we finish.